0: Hi, everyone, this is Mary Kirik of Frontrunners Innovate, and I have with me a very, very smiling gentleman today, very much of a smiling gentleman, and he has a good reason to smile. Um, He is the founder of Net Zero Beyond, and uh, that was just founded in uh, January of 2022, but the, the ideas behind it have been ruminating, I'm sure, for a little while. But we're all about renewable energy, carbon uh, negative tech, I uh, love that idea, focus on the planet, uh, meet that climate, you know, uh, climate action, if you will, um, sort of UN uh, mandate that we have. We're gonna talk more about all of that because it's fascinating um, what he's able to do uh, through this, um, this technology and solve some, some planet problems is just amazing. And so we'll get to that. But we want to know him first. And I've gotten to know him a little bit before I even brought him to this platform. Uh, And I can tell you he's fascinating. So Bill, welcome. Uh, We really appreciate you taking a few minutes with us uh, today. So as we said, it is um, St. Patrick's Day, and I can't help but notice the green behind you. So yay, I'm Irish, as you can tell. (laughs) So thank you. Um, so talk to us a little bit about you and what brought you into this work. Cause I know there's a lot in finance and, yeah. um, uh, you know, impact investment, that sort of thing that you've got in your past. So get us, give us the Renaissance man. version sure. of who you are.
1: Yeah. So th- thanks Mary for having me. I appreciate it. And the work that, that you and your group does. Um, so I started out, my original career was in real estate management development, um, and construction. Uh, we managed real estate portfolios. We built Facilities for clients. And, uh, you know, early on, I always knew we worked with some pension funds and asset managers. And whenever you increase the net operating income of a property, it makes it more valuable. And the way that you did that back in the day was increasing the efficiency of these buildings. Right. And so when we designed them, we'd always design them for the maximum energy efficiency as possible, which meant HVAC controls, more efficient systems better window systems, better insulation, and uh, I did that for a while, and then I actually uh, joined a large commercial construction company, and uh, we, we started using what was known as cool roofing at that point in time, and we focused in, uh, entered in the building envelopes, and um, we actually worked with uh, California Energy Commission at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs and a few other groups proving the energy efficiency in the envelope. Um, A lot of the work that we did, uh, we actually worked with the utilities, wrote some of the original rebate programs, and a lot of the work that we did became what's known as Title 24 in California, and a lot of it was adopted into the U.S. And then uh, from there, 2008, I I uh, was working with a large national company and we had we had clients all over the US and uh, solar was really just starting to take off at that point in time and um, we we were getting a lot of complaints actually from our clients that uh, solar contractors were coming out and voiding warranties and creating issues on their buildings and uh, so we we learned how to install solar by fixing everybody else's mistakes, so we got paid to, to learn essentially. Um, And the one thing that, uh, you know, the one thing that occurred to me was the way that that you got these projects done was through finance, um, which is kind of always what I, what I did in essence with building efficiency Um, as we would look at an efficiency, we'd figure out how to convert that consumption into, um, you know, increased upgrades in that building, increased efficiency in that building. And, you know, that's been the approach all along Um, over the years I, uh, I developed, uh, multiple different patents and being able to attach, uh, solar to buildings. Uh, and we, we installed over a hundred megawatts of, of, uh, distributed energy resources, all solar projects that were all on site to reduce carbon footprint, reduce consumption and reduce client costs. Um, and, uh, did that for quite a while. And then, uh, in 2018, um, started looking at the microgrid space because, uh, when I, was, when I was installing solar, solar started out in 2008 at like $8 a watt. And then uh, by 2016, 2017, the pricing had gotten down into about $1.50 a watt on the commercial scale. Now it's now it's even cheaper. Um, but I saw battery storage doing similar. Wow. And I also knew that uh, electric vehicles and some of the things that are on the forefront right now were going to be making a big impact. But I also knew that the energy density of some of these operations, like data centers and EVs and vertical farms and some other areas that are using a lot of energy that, that essentially the grid and the utilities can't get the power to these facilities. Mm-hmm. And so I started focusing on the microgrid space and uh, you know went out and we started talking to every single EV manufacturer that there was, hydrogen vehicles, battery manufacturers, all the different technologies in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> worked with uh, worked with a bunch of different clients, and then um, we started uh, Mavericks Microgrids uh, about a year ago, um, with the intent of uh, essentially doing what we had done in solar, uh, which was go out and, and help customers increase their efficiency and reduce their carbon footprint. Um, and so, you know, we have multiple projects in the microgrid space, from residential, commercial, industrial, all the way up to large infrastructure and community. Um, And one thing that, uh, you know, one thing that we saw that was missing was everybody knows what solar is, how solar works. Um, But what we don't have yet is a ecosystem in the microgrid space. That's, that's somewhat plug and play. Um, You know, and what, what I mean by that is that uh, there's a lot of solar contractors out there and there's a lot of, EPCs, energy procur- procurement contractors that understand that side of it, but the microgrid space is emerging so rapidly that there's no proven turnkey solutions. Mm-hmm. And so what we've done is, uh, you know, created Net Zero Beyond, which is a company that's focused on uh, all the different microgrid technologies, as well as being able to finance them and put them into a package where you're able to essentially bring the right technologies, bring the right finance and provide energy savings to a customer, whether that is residential, commercial, industrial, or, or community um, from day one, while also reducing the carbon footprint, not just in the buildings, but in their transportation and supply chain as well.
0: Wow, okay. That's huge. That is huge. Um, that's fantastic. So this is, thank you for bringing us up to speed on the story of Bill, Bill Shevlin. Um Yeah. So uh, that is, that's where you've come to now you guys have just launched uh, as we sit here in March, a couple of months ago. So what, what are you actually working on right now? What types of projects uh, are you
1: handling right yeah, now? Yeah. So we have, you know, we have projects with um, one of our, one of my favorite ones is actually uh, we have one with a residential development company that does 3D printed homes, um, mm-hmm. kind of a newer technology. Uh, this company is called Alquist 3D. Um, it's founded by a gentleman named Zach Manheimer. Um, Zach has done uh, years of work in economic development in rural communities and one thing that he saw was a need for affordable housing. And so he was looking for solutions in affordable housing. Uh, came across three D printing, started his company, and they printed, uh, they printed and handed over the first owner occupied home in the U S. in Williamsburg, Virginia, with Habitat for Humanity. Oh, awesome! Um,
0: yeah.
1: And then they've they've done a couple others since then, and now they have over seven hundred fifty homes in backlog and over five thousand homes in their in their pipeline. Um, and we're working with them to provide essentially net zero homes. Um, so we're providing solar storage, EV charging, and and smart home technology. Um, so we're financing all of that into the home to provide a lower cost of energy for the home, uh, fixed fuel cost for an EV, so we can fix the cost of the of the fuel for the vehicle for the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, and we build in smart home technology that allows the homeowner to see what the energy usage in their home is, how efficient it is, making sure that none of their appliances are breaking or not not functioning properly yeah. um, and eventually our goal with that is to allow them to see how they're doing compared to some of their neighbors or other you know other people within uh the community or or similar functions um, and then you know that it it also allows them to take control of their energy um, and that's mm-hmm. that's really the key is that in most cases whether it's your home or whether it's your business Energy and fuel is considered a fixed cost, and you can't do anything about it. Well, that's that's what we're what that's what we're aiming at is essentially showing people they can take that consumption, reduce that consumption, and, and eliminate or drastically reduce the carbon footprint at the same time.
0: You know, um, you, as you mentioned, uh, rural homes, and I'm thinking about some projects that we're working on. How how um, let's just say disaster resistant would this. Yep. Because when you think of 3D printed, you always think of cardboard or something, you know, not really substantial. And I know that's not the case here, but um, for those who may not know a whole lot about that space, tell us a little bit about that if you
1: if you can. Yeah, these uh, so these homes are actually uh, made out of concrete, the concrete that they're using. It's a it's a mortar type concrete. Um, It. Exceed six or seven thousand psi. Um, mm-hmm. they, they actually are in discussions with the UN on doing some testing for uh, providing these homes into you know areas that uh, are a little bit more state unstable politically. Um, you know, so they're, they they want to run ballistics tests and other things on them to see how they you know stand up. Um, and you know, we would provide the uh, energy resources for that. And what that means is that that, <clears throat> that home, whether it's in Virginia or Kenya or anywhere else, the power will always stay on. It will always be clean. Um, you know, it will always be affordable. Um, one thing that we're doing with the concrete is actually uh, one of the sites that we're working on has a waste to energy facility that uses pyrolysis and creates biochar. Um, at one site, we're actually going working with a concrete manufacturer that will mix that biochar into the concrete increases the strength of the concrete and reduces the CO2 footprint of the, of the concrete as well. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, synergies between, you know, potentially energy and construction even.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. Um, as I lived in a hurricane prone area, and I can tell you one of the biggest issues we deal with is a mold, the black mold after any, um, a you know, big rainfall and wind that destroys everything. Um, I always think about things like that when I hear about new construction materials. Um, yep. Is there any addressing of that that you can do?
1: Well yeah I mean so the the one of the things with mold is if you think about construction typically in a home it's stick built which means that it's wood with some insulation, sheetrock, all those all those Components are attractants to mold. It's food. It's food for fungus, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> um, <Well> concrete, <laughs> concrete, concrete is not. Um, and so, you know, these concretes are polymerized. Um, they're printed in a way that the R value of the wall is actually an R22, so that the structure is actually more energy efficient. Um, mm-hmm. Than a than a typical home, uh, Virginia Tech ran some uh, energy calculations on the first two ones that they did, and uh, you know found that they're about fifty percent more efficient than a standard stick built home um, because they don't have that that transmission. But to your point, uh, you know they're they're more resistant to water damage and fungus and everything else. Um, so.
0: Well, as we all know, most of the time when it's a mother nature, natural, natural disaster situation, water is, you know, is one of the biggest, um, you know, culprits for all of us. So let's move on now to what's coming ahead, because I'm really excited to talk to you about some of the projects you've got going.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Our, you know, our, our, I think our most exciting project is a project that we're doing in, in Kansas. Um, it's, uh, it's it's at Great Plains Industrial Park. It's called Kansas Proving Grounds, yeah. and that site is a former military base. Um, it was a, a Brac realignment um, base, and it was handed over to the community over ten years ago. And uh, it, it not really much happened with it because it's in rural Kansas and it's in the middle of nowhere, um, you know. And what you know what has happened um, is. Jobs, jobs and population have left these rural markets and the with the the green economy, there's an ability to bring jobs and homes and um, make real change in these communities. And so this this site is actually being set up as a hydrogen hub. Um, We're providing all the finance and infrastructure for uh, the site. So the site will have large scale energy storage, waste to energy The waste of energy will produce carbon negative electricity, as well as carbon negative hydrogen. Um, It will have wind and solar, and then there'll be hydrogen production. We're also building um, smart smart building technologies, smart city technologies into the entire system with the buildings. And the entire site essentially will have a carbon negative footprint from an energy perspective. they're, they're in conversations with some data centers, manufacturers, distributors, um, you know, a lot of people that are focused on, you know, the new the new technologies and the new economy that's coming out. Yeah, And, you know, we're really excited because we get the opportunity of essentially building the grid of the future and the energy economy of the future at this location. Um, and one thing that's really interesting about it is that because we can essentially generate all the electricity at a much lower cost and keep it on all the time, anything that's manufactured at that site or anything that's distributed at that site has a car- carbon neutral footprint um, from, the produ- from the manufacturing and distribution perspective. And so you know, one of the biggest challenges that, that we have right now is everybody's trying to figure out how do you decarbonize all these different sectors? Well, we're doing it all at one location essentially. And uh, you know this location, uh, we've been in conversations with NREL and a few other organizations around making this a demonstration site, not just for projects here in the U.S., but projects in other areas, um, and tying some of that, you know, the different technologies and the different work that's being accomplished there, into other projects that are, or other um, opportunities in other markets. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, you and I have talked about the fact that, that uh, my company is involved with another company, Climate Prosperity Enterprise Solutions, in working on some smart city types. I call them smart village. City sounds too big. Village. <laughs> I like yeah. that. Uh, types of projects, and it's kind of a hybrid. Uh, I can't call it, you know, uh, what you would think of as a smart city, but it's definitely got the, the tech pieces involved but it's a holistic sort of approach to how to put together a village that, that looks at, you know, the, the carbon neutral, you know, types of things and how we can do renewable energy better. And, um, you know, how we can do agriculture in a way that's, um, just more beneficial for everybody. And that gets away yeah. from some of the, the climate issues, the, you know, either the lack of or the too much of water, the, you know, the sunshine situation and the, um, the fact that if you move it indoors you can do 24 7 um yep. props uh and and harvesting much more more efficient um how you know you, you you clearly are involved in the potential of this sort of smart city or smart industrial park if you will sort of environment but from the standpoint of an actual community where the infrastructure needs to be there for and all kinds of infrastructure not just um, what we know of as, you know, uh, transportation, this or that. Um, how how do you see yourself fitting in to something? Yeah, like I that? mean
1: that's a good how question. So a, we
0: in a place that's marginalized, a, a marginalized,
1: you know, country. Yeah, I mean, so that's a good question. So when we when we build a microgrid, whether it's in an area like Kansas or even in a developing nation, um, our systems require broadband we need we need to be able to communicate with this great infrastructure on a moment by moment basis know what's going on and so all of our projects we bring broadband into them Mm -hmm. what that means is that we can provide that broadband into a community and typically um you know when you look at a a developing area you're not talking about a two thousand square foot home with heating air conditioning EV charger, everything else. You're talking about a few light bulbs, some, some things you can plug, plug some appliances into and, you know, just provide day-to-day living. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, what we've seen in that space is that if we build the infrastructure correctly from day one, people will start consuming electricity as soon as you provide it, because it's a, it's, it's a necessity. It's like water essentially, you know, that, that, internet and electricity or energy essentially are a commodity that should be provided to everybody and you can do that at a very affordable rate and you can do it in a way where you build a microgrid for a small developing country focused on the lighting and everything else and what we've seen in this space is that if you build a small community like that pretty soon everybody chips in and they might they might buy a refrigerated storage container and now the community has refrigeration. Well, as soon as the community has fridge refrigeration, everybody else wants to go get a small apartment sized fridge or, you know, some refrigeration of their own. And so then the grid gets has to get built up because the consumption in increases. Yeah. And, you know, while you're doing that, if you've already built in internet and 5g or broadband into that system they have access to the internet as well as part of you know part of the grid infrastructure and while you're building it if you're building in smart city technologies like smart meters or smart circuit panels or smart you know intelligence into the homes or into the communities by default that that grid is more efficient and it you need to build it in up front and it really doesn't it actually cost less in the long term because you're giving you're giving control and you're giving intelligence of what's going on inside of that structure. Whether mm-hmm. that structure is a small home or a a large building, um, having the knowledge of what's going in on inside of that home or that building from an energy consumption basis, you know how much extra capacity is available for energy within that market. And then you can dispatch that power out into other areas. Um, without that, the grid is wasteful. We, our, our grid infrastructure in general is hundred plus years old. We don't know what's going on with it within a moment by moment basis. If the grid goes down, somebody has to go out and actually manually pull a switch to try to turn it back on. Mm-hmm. It's, it's ridiculous the fact that we haven't upgraded our grid over a hundred years. When we, build, when we build an energy project, the technologies that we use behind the meter are more advanced typically than the utility puts in. And you know, so the, the, that's the crazy thing about it, but the opportunity is when you put in a microgrid into a developing country, it has. It can have the latest in grid technology, which allows it to be expandable. It allows it to be intelligent. You can know what exactly is going on within a home, within a building, within that community. And you know, knowledge is power, right? Knowledge is power, and then that that creates more efficiency. That creates better economy of the system. Um, and you know, typically when you're doing these projects, you're doing it with with local partners, creating local jobs. Um, you know, you're training people in those things. In, in some of the projects that we started doing in 2008, we would always put a, uh, a monitor up on the building or in the classroom so that people could see this is how much energy is being generated and this is how many trees that's equivalent to, or how many miles of that's a vehicle awesome. that's equivalent to. Yeah. You know, so there's a big, there's a big energy, there's a big education component that you can do within within these systems.
0: That's fantastic. Um, I think uh, you know, when we were talking a while ago, one of the things about working with these countries that are not used to a lot of this kind of technology and uh, are barely kind of getting by on what little bit of electricity electricity maybe they get during the course of the day. Um, when you go in and do a project this big in this sort of, we would call high tech is how, I mean, it sounds like you there's, there's some kind of monitoring piece that happens. Like you're not just taking it, planting it and letting it go. Or right. just saying, here you go, government. We've just <laughs> built this thing. It's yours now. You take care of it how does that roll out and how do you stay connected to that and in any way that's meaningful for everybody?
1: Yeah. I I mean, so we, we take a slightly different approach from a development perspective. And what I mean by that is that um, so because, because I always essentially partnered with sites. And what I mean by that is we worked with large portfolio groups. We worked with individual building owners and, I would show them, this is what our project costs, and this is how much energy we can produce, this is how much we can produce it for, here's how much we'll sell it to you for, and so it's a very open book. When we work with uh, communities, we work with commercial buildings, we work with like off-grid developments like that. We're the same way. So we go in and we say, "This is how much it's going to cost. This is our capital cost. This is how we're going to finance it. This is the revenue that's generated off of it." Um, we share that revenue with those with those sites, with those customers, with those you know, with those areas, with communities. What we want to do in the developing areas is essentially put that money back into the community um, in two different ways. One goes back into future infrastructure, because like we just discussed, when you put in a project into a developing area like this, you're you're first looking at func- basic functionality, okay. put some lights in, plug in some appliances, but eventually you need to look at refrigeration, potentially transportation, other things that will scale over time. And so if the some of the net revenue from that project goes essentially back into the grid infrastructure in that community, as that great infrastructure needs to be improved, the money's there to do it. And, and then, you know, if, if the community is essentially a co-owner because that money's being back, invested back into their community, they're going to take charge of it. They're, you know, they take ownership in it at that point in time. Um, you know, it's, it's when, you give, when you give somebody the ability to control something, whatever that something is, especially energy, they're going to take charge of it. I mean, I have smart meters. I have, I have smart thermostats in my home, right? I'm I, like, I pay attention to that. Oh God, I, you know, I use too many, I use too many hours this month. I've, I've got one extra green leaf this month, you know, whatever the reward systems that are, that are built into what we do. And it's, a, you know, it's the same, um, you know, knowledge, knowledge is power.
0: It is, it is, it's great. Um, I'm going to kind of step aside to a conversation that we had uh, a week or two ago um, Electronic vehicles EVs and yep. the conversation that routed around the conversion kits and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know, one one thing that uh, <clears throat> that we've that we've looked at, you know, here. So here in the U.S., I'm going to talk U.S. and then we'll you know talk in developing areas. Here in the U.S., um, we work a lot in the transportation sector. Two reasons. One is when you upgrade a facility, or when you when you want to convert to EVs, typically a facility can't pay for that upgrade infrastructure. If let's say you're a commercial operator with a small fleet of 10 to 15 vehicles, the infrastructure upgrade could be a million or millions of dollars to bring the utility upgrade in, put the EV charging in, put the necessary storage potentially that's required for all that just to charge those vehicles. Mm-hmm. And so, Customers don't have that ability. They don't have somebody on staff that has that knowledge. And what we do is we essentially provide all that through a fuel contract. So we look at the fuel consumption and we convert that fuel consumption into a long term contract where we're able to provide fuel at $1.50 to $2 a gallon equivalent for a 20 plus year period of time for a lot of these facilities. And one challenge though that we have is that a lot of the vehicles that are in the commercial space are very expensive. It's, it's essentially, a, uh, you know, it's a lot of technology in a vehicle with a rolling battery. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the heavy commercial space, these vehicles can cost half a million dollars or more. And most of it's being paid for by grant funding. And so we found a couple partners that do EV conversions in the commercial space as well as the consumer space. And so what they're doing is they're coming up with essentially kits to retrofit vehicles. And those kits are uh, a, a motor, a battery pack, and some of the other IT or IoT that goes into those, into those vehicles they ship those kits into these countries and train people how to install these kits. And so you're able to take those old vehicles, put new technology in them. Once it has that new technology, it saves fuel, it gets rid of the carbon footprint, um, you know, and and it's creating jobs at the same time. And for us, that that also allows us to provide fuel for those vehicles. Um, You know, and we see, you know, we talk to groups all over the place and you know, like here in the U S everybody wants a vehicle. Well, in Malaysia, there's a group that we're working with that does uh, replaceable battery packs. So it's a battery pack. You pop, take out, put in, the reason that they're involved with that company is in that area, you have a lot of trikes. We don't have any, we don't have any like taxi trikes here, but that's one of their biggest vehicles. And, you know, so that's, that's how they're, you know, going after electrification. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that, that, <clears throat> You know, that we see, I think this if we look in a developing area, it's more smaller vehicles that will be transformed into EVs or manufacturers will come in and provide those those smaller vehicles because you don't need to, you know, like here in the US, we've got our SUV, we drive around all by ourselves maybe not as much anymore because of the cost of fuel. Yeah. But yeah. in a lot of areas, you're talking about basic transportation to get me from here to school or you know here to the market. And they you don't need as much of a vehicle. And so mm-hmm. smaller, more efficient vehicles that are EV powered work much better. And in a lot of cases, they have older vehicles that are still functional and it's easier to convert that. And now you've got another... 10 15 plus years of functionality out of that same vehicle
0: yeah I think when we were talking I had this sort of vision we've got uh, a gentleman we're working with in Malawi that owns a large farm and has some uh, commercial vehicles for trucks you know to to move the the crops and one of the things I, that we were talking about was the fact that a if there was any um, computerized data or whatever there that it would be saved once it transferred over into the EV um, yep. situation, but also that wherever it goes, it would have that, you know, that connectivity right? that, um, that would be there for him. So it would literally be a communication system. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yep.
1: Yep. Well, that's what, yeah. you know, I mean that, that, you know, to your point, you know, just like when we put a microgrid in, we have to put the broadband in
0: mm-hmm. when you
1: put a vehicle, when you put an EV, if it has, if it's a larger vehicle, it needs to have telemetry in it, and you need to be able to communicate with it. So be by default, it, it has broadband in it. Yeah. So then, you know, if it has broadband, because it's reporting back to home base, wherever home base is, yeah. somebody that's within the vicinity of that vehicle can have broadband as well. Um, yeah. You know, so you, you kind of can have decentralized communication as well as decentralized power. Um, when you when you look at that, um, you know, so it's, it's it's pretty interesting. One of the, <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things that we're doing in, uh, in Kansas is uh, we're looking at a couple different locations to do some agrivoltaics, um, you know, where we've got a racking manufacturer that we work with, where we can put solar about 20 to 25 feet above the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it provides power. Essentially we can put, we can fit like, one megawatt per two acres worth of power. It provides power for the, for the farm. It provides some shading for the land. So now you've reduced the heat input into the crop. Certain crops grow better in shade. You're reducing the amount of irrigation, um, you know, and then you can power a vehicle that's running that farm as well. Um, You know, so that's, that's one of the things that we're looking there. And one of the things that I'm most excited about, because that, becomes more sustainable, um, you know, from an agricultural perspective. Um,
0: yeah. And that's important for the, the countries that we're, we've been talking about, uh, yeah. working with extremely important because that's, that's their big ticket. Um, so I usually just ask, you know, uh, what types of people that you need to meet to kind of help you move forward. But I also want to include in that what types of ideal leads, if you will, or, or ideal people you want to work with. Um, so include that. So, so. Yeah,
1: you know, so we, you know, we we are here in the US, we finance a lot of a lot of our projects with tax equity. Mm-hmm. And some people are familiar with tax equity, some people are not essentially the way tax equity works is if we're installing a million dollar solar project, mm-hmm. and you owe $260,000 worth of taxes, you can take that $260,000 instead of writing it to the IRS, you can write it into that solar project you get a dollar for dollar benefit you don't owe you don't owe the IRS that 260,000 dollars that year you get the the majority of the depreciation benefit off of that project so you get you don't pay taxes you get all the tax benefit plus a portion of the revenue off of that project so essentially you can take a tax liability turn it into an asset yeah. and that's that's really how we finance a lot that's of projects awesome. here in the US um, we also work with carbon credits and carbon markets. Um, but in developing areas, uh, we're in the process of setting up a foundation uh, to provide some of the funding on the equity side for some of these projects. Um, we, have, we have some debt partners in some of these areas. But as you know, working in developing areas, the finance is the most difficult. Now, we can still use carbon credits and carbon offsets as part of the finance, but part of it has to be debt driven and part of it has to be equity driven. And one of the reasons we're putting a foundation together is that that foundation essentially becomes an equity contributor Mm -hmm. and part of the money from, so they, they essentially will invest into these developing areas. the the money that's generated by these projects will stay predominantly in the community. Part of it will come back to that foundation so that it can go back in and put into another project in the future. Um, You know, so we're, we're setting that up. We're going to be looking for people that want to be involved in that foundation. Um, You know, we're also looking for projects of communities or groups that want to be able to decarbonize that are using fuel consumption or energy consumption in these markets that we can help decarbonize lower lower their costs and provide excess energy into the markets. Um, you know we're looking for development partners in in a lot of these regions we don't have boots on the ground in these areas you know so we want to work with uh, groups that are doing energy projects that we can help and bring technologies to. Um, we're always interested in looking at, emerging technologies in the energy space. Um, you know, just we, we, it, it's it's going to take a whole bunch of people lifting all together to accomplish what we need to be able to accomplish over the next 10 to 15 years to get essentially beyond Net zero because really and that's that's why we started Net zero beyond is that getting to Net zero, is not good enough because we've already exceeded the amount of pollutants in the atmosphere that are really sustainable to live in the environment that we know that we have. You know, I mean, civilization as we know it, or humankind as we know it, has been around for a certain period of time, and during that period of time, the environment has been fairly stable up until the Industrial Revolution. You know, so we've, we've, put, we've put more into the world that's non-statable. Now we need to be able to figure out how to take it back out. And that's why in, in a lot of the larger projects that we're working on, we're using carbon negative technologies so that we can take that CO2 and put it back into the ground, put it back into the earth, put it back into the soil, um, you know, because it's, we, need to, we need to figure out circular economy type methodologies. And the reality is, is that those technologies are here today and we can essentially take the consumption of what we're doing and convert it into something that's more sustainable, that also benefits local communities.
0: Well, I, you know, you're like a walking textbook for all of this. <laughs> and so I'm just tickled to death that um, we've connected and I have to thank Carrie when I get a chance again to you know, get to her and say, thank you for the introduction. Um, she's one of our front runners, too. So now that you are, <laughs> this is good, since we've uh, done the interview, um, we're definitely going to be moving you around in front of some folks and um, creating some introductions we think would be meaningful. And if anybody out there is listening and thinks this is too good to be true, um, you need to be connected to to Bill and you can do that through us. Uh, And if you're seeing this on YouTube, go to www.frontrunnersinnovate.com. You're going to see this interview and all the good stuff that Bill shares with us and the ways to connect. And you can connect directly or through us um, in that way. So, Bill, thank you so much for the time this morning, for sharing all this good information and the opportunities and options and cool things. Absolutely. Oh, thank you Mary.
1: I appreciate the time and appreciate the work that you're doing and, and and appreciate the opportunity to you know be on your on your uh on your site and your YouTube channel. All
0: right, great. Well, thank you everybody until next time. Happy front running.